0: Have you ever had uh, the expectation, you know how things are going to go, and you think you know what's happening, and then you find out way too late after suffering injury that it's not that way? Story, a joke. This guy's walking down the street, an elderly man, he's going by this wooden fence, and on the other side of the fence is a playground, and he can hear the children in there, you know, and... They're laughing, they're giggling, and nothing like, honestly, people agree with me here, the older you get, more precious children look, and are to you. I don't know what it is, but you can watch an old man like me when kids come in, we all start looking at them, want to pet on them, and so forth, and he's thinking, oh, those sweet children. Listen to them laughing and playing their games, and what are they doing? And he's listening, and they're all shouting, 21, 21, 21, and in his mind, he's just, can see them just jumping up and down. Twenty-one, they're laughing, you know, carrying on. And as he goes down through the, the, the sidewalk or by the sidewalk, he goes by this and he sees there's a hole there, a knot hole in the fence. So he thinks, well, let me look and see what these beautiful, precious children are doing, laughing and yelling and shouting, 21, 21. He puts his eye up to it and he looks in the hole, and then all of a sudden, boom! Somebody hits him right in the eye with a stick. He falls back, and then he hears them on the other side going, 22, 22, 22. (laughs) So, that was the only way I could get that joke in. Forget about it now, all right? (laughs) If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, and I know it will be on your screen, I assume. Gospel of Luke chapter 13. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to see in this text, The Lord Jesus Christ gives a very direct word, a warning, really, to all of us, and a warning especially to those who have never made their calling and election sure, as Apostle Peter says. Now the context is, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And we know what's going to happen there. And then one of them said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Another translation says, are there few that will be saved? So it's a very simple question. And we would expect maybe a simple answer. That Jesus would say yes or no. But he doesn't do that. And the motive of this guy asking... We don't know exactly. He could have been concerned for a friend. He could have been concerned for someone else. He could have been concerned for his community and here in your church, the people that visit or come, very much a part of the fellowship, but they've never made a decision for Christ. And then Jesus stops. He stops the most important journey that was ever made, that is to Jerusalem. Then he turns into the crowd And later you'll see, especially to the man who said, are there few that will be in heaven? And he speaks to him beginning in verse, and all of them in verse 24. And then he said to them, strive to enter in the narrow gate. For many I say unto you will seek to enter and not be able. Verse 25, and when once the master of the house has risen up, and shut the door, and you began to stand outside and to knock on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say unto you, I do not know you where you are from. Verse 26, and you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, notice that word, iniquity, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Now what you have here in this text is you have a very presumptuous man, I believe, who Speaking generally, maybe, are there few that be saved? Not a very specific question in one way, because that doesn't involve anything about him. Maybe the assumption here, what the Lord detected when he stops, is that this man, this man had a presumption that he's one of them. When he's spoken about others, he has a presumption he's already within. The gate, if you will, into the kingdom of God, saved and on his way. And thus in that context, you have a man who is presumptuous. Maybe he thinks he's saved. Maybe he thinks one day he will be saved. And maybe he just went simply looking at others and thinking about others. But Jesus stops and he turns the focus to each of us individually. You may have questions. What's it mean about being baptized? What does it mean when you say you're saved once and for all? What does it mean when you backslide? What does it mean? All these other things that people may ask that sound like spiritual questions and spiritual interests. And Jesus stops and he says, no, no, no. That's not the priority for you in your life. You may be saying, are there many thinking of your whole town? But I'm telling you, Jesus is saying right now, I want you to accept the responsibility that you've got to do something. And what do you got to do? He says, now, strive through the narrow gate. You'll see later in the interpretation, you probably already noticed that once he str- shuts the door of the householder, so he's saying, strive through the narrow door. And he's saying, now, make up your mind. Strive. There's something you to do. Do not sit around and be confident that you are okay and you've never made a move and you cannot say you've gone through that narrow door. Do not assume that you will be there. You may be thinking that someday I, 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 well, someday I might, someday I will, someday I'll be overwhelmed by the feeling, whatever it may be. But these people, if you notice in the demonstration that Jesus gives, they were very sincere. They go all the way up to the door And when it will not open, they say, now wait a minute, Lord, you know me. You know me. You ate and drank, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But yet, being full of confidence that they knew the Lord and the Lord knew them, they find out for eternity, not so. And I tell you, my friend, this is going to happen. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus returns to this again. And in Matthew chapter 22, if I may get there. Well, one reason I can't get there is Matthew 25. <laughs> so those little numbers that mess you up, you know what? Matthew 25, verse 11. Speaking the parable of the ten virgins, but the key verses I want you to see is Verse 11. Afterward came also the other virgins saying, Lord, open, Lord, Lord, open it to us. And he answered and he said, I truly, I say unto you, I know you not, or I do not know you. Twice he speaks these words, presumption that the door will be open, that the Lord will receive them. But yet, thoroughly presuming and confident, they find out way too late that they had left something undone. Now, what had they left undone? Part of that you can find in the text he gives us in Luke. There's a hint. In verse 26, in Luke chapter 13, he says, now, these people are saying, we ate and drank in your presence, Lord. Open the door. That indicates that they were very familiar with the church experience. They were very familiar with what it was like maybe to be here and hear songs sung that you like, some you don't like. I found you can't have a group of over five and everybody likes every song. But yet they liked the fellowship. They say, we ate and drank in your presence. We were very much into church. We very much thought we were fellowshipping with you. And then they say, you taught in our streets. You taught in our streets. And when they say that, what they're saying is, listen, Lord, we, we knew and believed you were the Son of God. We knew the doctrine of the church. We could quote John 3.16. We were very familiar with the teachings of Christ, and we knew about loving one another, the golden rule. and Maybe you even tried to take that and make it part of your life, to live by the golden rule, teach others the way you want to be treated. And that's Jesus' teaching, that's something we all should do. But what they were hoping is that, listen, if I get close enough, if I get familiar with the church experience, I come week after week after week, I know them, they know me, Oh, and I listen, and I listen to the preaching, I listen to the teaching, I read the Bible, I know what the Bible says, I understand those things. Lord taught me, he taught in my streets, and that's it. But yet, that wasn't enough. There was something left undone, and the thing I want you to see, first of all, is that they were presumptuous, maybe just like that man, who wanted to talk about, are there few that will be saved? who wanted to talk about a deep theological question we don't really know the full answer to. But yet, he had personally left something undone for him. And what Jesus then stops and tells them is that it wasn't enough. And you're going to find out way too late that you left something undone. And what did they leave? What did that man, what did the others, and what with us today... For all this word is for our prophet. What did they leave undone? It's all in one word. They did not strive. They did not strive through the narrow door. Now what does it mean to strive? Strive, as we use it today, sounds very vigorous, doesn't it? It sounds like I fought my way and got through the door. That somehow I was able to work enough, be good enough, put away everything that I thought and the church told me was sin, and then now I am striving in. It can't be that way. That cannot be what strive means. Why? Because the Bible is very clear, and the New Testament is very clear, and Jesus was very clear. Strive cannot mean works. Because the Bible says that it's by grace, Romans 6, 23. says it's by grace, it is through that way, it is through a gift of God. It says the wages of sin is death. Man, I always hate that part, but it's true. But notice what the rest of the verse says. But the gift of God is eternal life. So it can't be striving, it can't be works, because it says that being saved is a gift. We are all sinners, but it's a gift. And we cannot earn it, we cannot deserve it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tell us, By grace are you saved, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man would boast or brag in the presence of God. So, the Bible is very clear, striving cannot be working your way to get saved. Because being saved, I have salvation because God gave me something. And would I get an amen for anybody here that's a Christian? Did you get saved when God gave you something? He gave you the gift of salvation? Is it not true? So if it's a gift, how in the world does this striving come in? Well, I'll come to that in a minute. But the reason it has to be a gift, and that everyone must understand. I didn't understand it. As I began to seek, I was saved at the age of 34. For two years, I went through what I call my reform period. I I tried to get ready. I knew I was convicted of my sin. I was weighted down with it. I knew that life was very frustrating. Saw no real purpose in in what I was doing. It seemed to be fruitless and useless in terms of what it meant to be part of my life. And I knew that God and Christ somehow must be the answer. But the truth is that even as I tried to change, as I tried to strive, it might say, even then I could not strive enough because I am a sinner. And you're a sinner. And we have all sinned. That's what the Bible says, that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how good you may think you are. It doesn't matter how good you may think you can become. We're sinners. And it tells you right there is the definition of sin. We have all sinned and come short of whose glory? The glory of God. Not Arnold Turner, not the deacons, not the leaders of the church, not Billy Graham, not the Pope, anybody else. Sin is to miss the mark. It's to come short of the perfection of God. You know there can be all kinds of sins. I mean, there can be the gross sins of the flesh that we all condemn. But seldom will ever speak about the sins of the spirit that we all do: judging, envy, greed, selfishness. There can be the sins not only of the flesh and of the spirit. There's also Like the sins of commission, we we speak about those. We'll talk about people that drink or people that do this or do that or whatever it may be. Something you act upon, that's something you commit. That's a sin of commission. But Jesus said and taught that there were sins of what we'd have to call omission. Not doing what we should have done. The Bible says to know good and not do it is sin. Sin can be inactive. Can, you can sit here right today. And maybe as you think of me and wish I'd shut up, you could be sinning. Because you may despise what I'm saying. You may wish i you may not like me at all. How many of us know that kind of sin? Man, in political season, you hear that sin a lot, don't you? People with hatred and anger and bitterness. Our whole country's divided. Communities are divided, but I'm not going to talk about that point, other than the fact that within our hearts, there are sins of omission, things that we failed to do, we failed to forgive, we failed to love as we are. Now, the fact of the unbeen and trying to establish was beyond doubt, we all are sinners. Well, what can we do about that? The reason it has to be a gift is we are helpless to do anything about it. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm gonna change. I'm gonna change my life. I'm not gonna be the man I was. Uh, I'm gonna change my habits. I'm gonna strive to live the right kind of life. But the fact is, you've already sinned. And what is the penalty of sin? The scriptures say the wages of sin is death. And what does it mean by death? It means more than dying. We're all going to die physically. Amen? But death there is more, and it's what Christ experienced for us. But death, when God says the wages of sin is death, it goes deeper than physical life and the departing of life from this body. The root of the concept and the reality, it's not a concept, the reality of death, remember this word, is separation. And when he speaks of death, when God says the wages of sin is death, he's speaking not only when you die physically, the soul separates from the body. But if you die as a sinner, dead unpaid, then you also die spiritually. You're separated from God. The creator has separated himself, you have, from the God and the creature. Because God is holy in our sins, He cannot receive us without that sin debt being paid. So, when it says the wages of sin is death, that's what it means when we hear Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the world turned dark. When he was on that cross, he not only died physically, he died spiritually for the first time in all of eternity. The Son of God was separated from the Father. And that is the fullness of death. And that's what it means by the wages of sin are death. Think of this this story that he's telling. There's a door, there's a wall, right? Walls separate. They come, they want to come into the presence of the Lord. They knock at the door. And he says, depart from me. I do not know where you're from. And then they say those excuses. Oh, listen, Lord. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. We gave money to the church. We said, oh, Christ is the Son of God. We believed all those things. And then he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, sin, sin. Now, it's true that we're all sinners, but these who came to the door still had sin upon them, iniquity. They still were identified as sinners, and the sin debt unpaid. Do you follow me? So what is happening here then is something has to happen besides simply saying that, ah, I believe. Something has to happen that has something to do with the narrow door. And now let me tell you what it is. God is a merciful God. And none of us would be saved apart from that. But God is also a just God. And a just God has to deal with the truth. And the truth is that you and I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now how does he do that? How can God be loving Jeremiah says he loves with an everlasting love. How can he be loving but yet just and receive a man like me and make me a child of God? This is how. In the fullness of time, the Bible says, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us. That we're under the law. The law being the perfect, express will of God. Live this way and you shall be saved. We think of the Ten Commandments. We think that if we can keep those, we'll be saved. The Bible teaches that that's not going to happen. It says that the commandments and the Ten Commandments were actually given to instruct us to let us see our sin. And if you look at those Ten Commandments, you will come to a knowledge of, man, I've come short. I haven't kept it as I should. So then, again, I am, the sins are upon me, the iniquity is upon me. Now what happens? He sends forth his Son, born of a virgin, the first time and only time, that there is a man born without a sin nature. The divine, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word, it tells us in that 14th chapter of John 1, became flesh. And John said, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus Christ was, came into the world fully divine, fully of the nature of God, unity in God, took on flesh and bone, and this is the reason: if the wages of sin is death, that means the debt has to be paid, and that means that a debt has to be paid by death, physically, spiritually, and only God cannot sin. Oh, he can't. It's, not, it's beyond his nature. It, you, you might lie. You might try not to lie. Do you know the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie? You might say, I'm going to be faithful to the church, to God. It tells us in the Bible that even God remains faithful even if we're faithless, listen to this part, because he cannot deny himself. What does that mean, King James? It means that he can't deny his own true nature. He has to, not has to, he is compelled out of his own nature to be faithful to us, to keep his word, even when we don't. So this kind of perfection comes in this one man, Jesus Christ. And he lives a sinless life. And then, as I said, in the fullness of time, God gave him up. Now God united to flesh and bone. Death, what did I tell you? Physically, right? Right and spiritually. Only a man can die. God can't die. Only a man can die. And only God can be sinless. No man can claim that. No woman, no child. For we have within us that nature for sin. And we'll come short. Some can come more short than others, but it doesn't matter. We come short. So now in that time, that place... At the cross, Jesus Christ dies. And what it says was happening there that looked so brutal and ugly, and it was for the human eye, as he hung on that cross, as he moaned and groaned, as he was humiliated, dying on a public road, stripped, there he suffered, there he moaned, he groaned, and there the wrath of God was being poured out on my sin and yours. Prophet Isaiah said that he, the Lord laid upon him the sins of us all. So he suffers in our place. He takes our humiliation, mine. He takes the humiliation of all the filth of my life. And he bears it. And then when the world turns dark... As I said earlier, he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now he is experiencing spiritual death in my place. That's my destiny, but for Jesus. He takes my spiritual death, my physical death, and when it's enough, he says, So it is finished. He doesn't say, I'm finished. He says, It is finished. What is finished? My salvation. What is finished? The door through which I can enter, where that wall of my sins I built by brick, by brick, by brick. He has now opened a door. And he says another place. He says, I am the door. And if any man enters in by me, he'll be saved. So as we speak of these things, then he gets us back to the word. How do we get through that door? By faith in Jesus Christ. But it's a narrow door. Why is it so narrow? It is so narrow, and what he's saying to that man and what I say to you, so—it it is as narrow as what is called saving faith. Saving faith. A faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. We live in a society where religion has become so common, so accepted, Libby and I, we can't find a church we are comfortable with in Lexington, but you, you see people who go and they dress up and they're very comfortable and, or maybe they go to church and, in jeans, whatever, it doesn't matter because God looks upon the heart. And as that man did, I can sit there and wonder, I wonder how many of these people are really Christian. You know what God's saying to me? Quit worrying about that on them. Look at yourself. There's a narrow door. And there's a day coming when the door will shut. And make sure that you're sure that you've gone through that door. Because the moment it shuts, there's separation between you and God that will be permanent. The Bible speaks of a great white throne where we're all risen up and we all stand before God, the just and the unjust. And the books are open and the Lamb books of life. And if your name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're cast into hell. You're cast into hell, and then what do we find? John says this is the second death. Why second? Because for the first 34 years of my life, I lived spiritually dead. I was separated from God. And then raised me up on that great day of judgment And I'll be separated again. It's the second death, the second time I've been separated from him. But I can tell you, on the authority of the Word of God and by experience, that I have gone through the door. How did I get through the door? How do I strive to get through the door? I have to give up on all presumption that I can bring to God something that would make me more acceptable. I have to give up on any idea that by reform I can get closer to God. I have to give up on the idea that I can do enough because I've done a lot of bad things, but I could do enough somehow to make it right and say, here, God, look, I changed my life. I don't drink anymore. I don't smoke anymore. I don't dance anymore because my foot's so bad. I don't do any of these things. So here I am. And then he says, did you ever... Did you ever, Arnold, come through that narrow door, that door that is so narrow? There's no room for you to come through with your works. There's no way, no room for you to come through with your promises. There's no way, no room for you to come through, even though the community might respect you or your family respects you. None of that will get you. It'll hang out. You have to lay all that aside. You have to lay all things aside, all your hope that I'll be a better man, that one day I'll be ready, and I'll be a better woman, one day I'll be ready. You can't do that. You have to become like a child. You have to lay it all down. You have to look at that narrow door. And by the way, the word strive, you know what the root word in the Greek? is translated into English, you know what it means? Agonize. Agonize through the narrow door. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That sounds like works again. No. Have you ever agonized? Uh, The illustration I always use is true. I don't know if Brent's here or not, but my agony was always like on Christmas Eve. And I have to put all that stuff together. And the nuts and bolts, you know, and all that. One year, there was a swing. I had to put it all together. And let me tell you that, having a nut and a bolt, and I could not get that bolt and nut together by just casually going, I had to make up my mind, man, I'm putting this sucker on, and I got to look, and I got to be intentional, and then I can get it on. And that's what it means by one word by agony you've got to be very deliberate. You just can't casually put it together. And that's the reason that Brent, when he was about 10 years old, and Walter Frazier cut the hillside, he said, come in, he said, Dad, I found the teeter-totter you threw over in the river. (laughs) True story. Because I'd agonized so much, that was all I was going to take, man. I quit. (laughs) So what Jesus is saying and what God is saying to strive means it has to be totally and thoroughly deliberate. If you're waiting on a feeling or if you think you can sit and act like people have gone through the door, even people, I, I believe, and I'm very concerned about this, I pray about it, but people have made it even to baptism. And you're relying on your baptism. Now, there's only one thing that you can put your confidence in. That Jesus Christ bled, suffered, and died to pay for your sin my sin and then I responded in faith and faith is not just believing that's true faith is believing in enough to act on it it's like the illustration so often is you know you can believe that chair is there and it will hold you that's believing about the chair but when you sit down that belief becomes faith you put all your faith in the chair Go to get on an airplane. You can, I can say, I believe the pilot can fly this plane, but I do not have faith until I get on that plane and sit down. For now, I put all my... I can't fly a plane. I put all my trust, all my hope, in the ability of that pilot to get me where I'm going. And when I put my trust in Jesus, it's the same in a sense that it's beyond just believing about him. It's this. Lord, you say... You suffered. You died for me. I'm a sinner. But I'm going to put all my trust in what you say. I'm not going to listen to the wisdom of men. I'm going to put my trust in you and what you did at the cross. Now, Lord, save me. Forgive me. Come into my life. It's that narrow. No matter whatever people think of me, no matter what I thought I could do for you, it doesn't matter. Lord, forgive and save me. That's how narrow the door is, and there's no substitute. So I ask you, have you ever deliberately, meaningfully, with a meaning, asked him to forgive you and save you? And I mean talking about you personally, not just generally coming to church or whatever. That's good. I'm glad you come. You can't find the truth if you don't come where the truth is preached. But have you ever come to the point where you say, Lord, I give up? You may, I may have ate and drank in your presence. You may have taught in my street. It's not enough. I may have fellowship with the church, I may know the doctrine, but none of that matters, Lord. You've opened a door for me, a narrow door. And now, because of your grace, your goodness, your blood, your suffering, I step through. Save me. Change me. I put all of my hope and trust in you. Doesn't that sound agonizing and intense? You cannot come to church long enough to where you just kind of soak in. You can't fall in through the door, you can't back up through the door. No matter how much you try, you have to individually decide, I am entering in. I'm gonna ask, forgive me, Lord, save me, and I'm gonna do it now. If that's you, I'm gonna ask, every hip bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, then make up your mind, make your motion right now. It's a prayer that comes from the heart and out of the will. Pray this prayer. Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner and you know all my sins. But you tell me that you love me And that you died for me. And that in that death, you paid my price. So Lord, here I am. Forgive me of all of my sins. Come into my heart and life. Save my soul. And as you do that, I receive you. I will follow you. I give up on myself. Save my soul. Change my life. As you give me the power and understanding to see your will, I'll follow. It's in Jesus' name, O Lord, I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer in your minute, you heard it. God heard it. It's not an altar that saves you. It's not an aisle that saves you. God saves you, and he saves you when you speak and pray in faith, just as I prayed here. So I urge you today, believe. You've made that step, then believe God heard. You say, now what do I do? One reason we give altar calls is God calls for you to follow him, and you follow him openly. That's what baptism is all about. It's not to save you, it's a testimony of what you say and what the scriptures say God's already done for you. But when we give this altar call, it's nothing better, and you need to seal that decision in a sense. But come in openly. Jesus says, If you will not acknowledge me before men, neither will I acknowledge you before God. Now, he's not saying your acknowledgement saves you. What he is, is he's defining. What saving faith is that if someone receives Christ, they don't hide it. He said, who takes a candle and puts it under a bushel? A basket. Makes no sense. If Christ is coming into your life, I urge you today, begin to live it out. You may want to come, come openly. I'll pray with you again. Maybe you're a Christian, you're dealing with things. Maybe you have some wonders and doubts about, have I done the right thing? Today is the day. Apostle Peter said, Be sure that you're sure of your calling and election. Nothing wrong with that. Let's all stand. And whatever you need, I urge you now, respond. Maybe you want to come and pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for your family. You may want to pray for me. That'd be great. Come. Come right now.